You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Jerry Parker and me, Niels Kostoblasen, where each week we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. For those of you who are regular listeners, our conversations are intended to help you learn and grow as rules-based investors. And if you're new to the show, we hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity to check out the back catalogue and listen to past episodes that you may have missed, like last week's episode with Eric Crittenden, where we got into some deep issues relating to the acceptance of trend following by investors and how reframing trend following can actually make a huge difference and make it easier for financial advisors to include trend following in their client portfolios. And a lot more, of course, which I have a feeling that we might go back on some of the topics today. But first off, Jerry, always great to be back with you. How are things so where you are in Florida? Yes, they're great. Thanks for having me. It's good to be back as well. Good to see you and be back on the podcast. It's great. It's warm. Florida's nice. And I'm looking maybe to go north here pretty soon to get some cooler weather. <laughs> yeah, very nice. Okay, so today's market wrap is going to be probably a little bit longer than usual, but let's uh, see how we go. I mean, this week there was some evidence that the inflation is certainly top of mind of many investors. We had the May Consumer Price Index. Year over year, CPI rose 5% during the month. And that is up from 4.2% reported in April. And it's certainly above the 4.7% consensus expectation. Now, paradoxically, interest rates fell in the news under normal circumstances. Of course, rising inflation would result in investors selling bonds, driving interest rates higher. Investors at the moment, at least it seems, they are listening to what the Fed is saying and the promises they're making not to taper and also that this is a transitory event we're seeing. Now, similarly, the stock markets pretty much ignored the inflation report and traded slightly higher. And I think indices actually posted, certainly in the US, some all-time record highs during the week. And of course, attention will shift now to next week's FOMC meeting and whether the committee will raise rates on interest on excess reserves and the reverse repo. Now, last night, which is Friday night, the European Championship in football began with Italy securing the first three points. And I couldn't help thinking that maybe we could use this event as a chance to review our portfolios as if they were football teams. As managers of our own portfolio slash teams, we need to decide how we want to structure the team. Do we want to play 50% defenders and 50% strikers? Or maybe 60-40? I think you know where I'm going with this. What if you put a play on the pitch that is meant to score goals and doesn't? Or someone that is meant to defend and doesn't do that either? That could create problems for the team or your portfolio like we saw in last year, in March, where seemingly defensive players like Gold and Bonds simply stopped playing like they would normally do and look more like a striker than a defender. If you follow football, you know how tempting it is for the clubs to go out and spend a lot of money, and I think we need to think about sharp ratio here, on a single star player. 
um, as they believe that this will be great for the team, not least commercially. But the truth is that unless the player actually is a good fit for the team, it does not really matter how big a star he or she is. This is why we see teams without any apparent star players sometimes do really well, even against the biggest teams in the world. Now, I'm sure you know your football history, but if you don't, let me share a short story. In 1992, my birth country of Denmark did not qualify for the European Football Championships. And admittedly, when you looked at the names of the players, unless you were Danish, you probably only heard about one or two of them. Back then, there was a civil war raging in the old Yugoslavia, and it was decided on short notice that they would not be allowed to take their place in the tournament. So with only two weeks' notice, Denmark was told that they could get their spot instead, which came as a huge surprise as many of the players had already left for their summer holiday. You probably guessed by now that this fairy tale ended with Denmark winning the European Championship against all odds, with a team that not only had few star players, but where the manager had, in his brilliance, found a group of players that really played well together. Players that were outstanding in filling their role that they had to play to make the team better. To make a long story short, and like I mentioned in last week's update, we need to think about the team and not just the individual players. We need to find assets or strategies that blend well together in order to have the best chance of success in an unknown and uncertain future. Before I leave this topic, let me just say that most investors think of bonds as a great defender and equities as a perfect striker. But where would you put trend following or maybe volatility? So maybe long volatility would be a good goalkeeper, but what about a long-short volatility strategy like, for example, what we do at Don, a long-short strategy? Could this be a goalkeeper that can actually score, like we saw in uh, the Liverpool goalie, Alison Becker, who saved his team's season a few weeks ago, not by saving a shot at his own goal, but by scoring a goal against West Bromwich Albion in the 94th minute, which was a beautiful header and left everyone in awe. And what about trend following? A striker or a defender? For me personally, I think that we as trend followers should play in midfield. We can score, we can defend, but most of the time we just make the team more stable with our non-predictive, bracket, non-correlated way of playing. Anyway, I better stop now this analogy before it comes it becomes too long. But one thing is for sure, your team selection should depend on the opponent. In the last 20 years, that opponent has been deflation. And certain players and team formation styles have done really well. However, if the opponent going forward is called inflation, I'm convinced we all need to rethink our own team selection. Jerry, I know you're into sports. I'm not sure whether that includes soccer, but is that something you follow? Of course, I love soccer, and I've been to the World Cup. Fantastic. And I think that was a great analogy. I think our port, our trend-following portfolios, currencies, commodities, stocks and bonds, and shorts in those markets, along with the longs, is a perfect team. It has all the bases covered. The only thing I would add is that we, I feel like sometimes I'm not patient. You know, I have some underperformers on my bench. Let's say the grains, for instance, they've been underperforming for years, and I just have to maintain my discipline of knowing that at some point in time, even though they haven't uh, performed well, they, I, st- I have them on the team for a reason and they may really help me during a good period. So this is exactly what's happened. So I think 
we're always prepared because we're the most diversified and the most different type of players on our in our portfolio. So I think I can just twist any good story into how uh, trend following benefits investors. I think you can actually, without a doubt. So I wanted to ask you, it's been a few weeks, obviously, since you've been on the podcast, sort of just from a big picture point of view, anything that stood out to you in the last month or so performance wise or in terms of market moves, we'll probably dive into a few more specifics later on, but anything sort of big picture you want to share before we dive into that? Well, Friday was a a counter trend day, so I don't want to get too absorbed into that. I think most of the commodities are looking, still looking really good. Metals and grains, there's been some volatility and some maybe some sell-off a little bit in the grains. You know, obviously the dollar had a good day yesterday, which is not good. I think the, the issue you brought up, you know, with the inflation numbers and the bonds. Uh, back in the day, you know, I was sort of taught that when you have the market doing something different from the fundamentals. So if you see a rally in the bonds on a when a report comes out that talking about something that should have sent the bonds lower, then that's kind of a bad sign. You know, you've got to go with the trend and not deny the price action and what the market is saying. And the market looked at those numbers and said, no, thank you. I'm going to head the opposite direction. And maybe it's more of the Fed or I read too much information about how disastrous things might be if rates went up. So that's kind of no fun. I don't really have a huge position in the bonds, but I have a nice position. So it was kind of uh, surprising to see that happen. And then, of course, Bitcoin was the big loser for me uh, last month in May. I had a very diversified portfolio and I trade really small. So I was making money in a lot of the commodities, but my positions are spread out over so many of the grains and the metals and the currencies. So I was making good money, but I was really getting a a lot of my profit was coming from Bitcoin. And then Bitcoin became such a huge part of my portfolio when the volatility started to really go crazy that it sort of dominated my performance in May and allowed me to have a negative month, small negative, but still, I think it was a good month for most CTAs. So I kind of recognized that this was possible and was coming that I was so diversified. And yet, because I didn't volatility scale, my back my position i was uh, you know not diversified as as far as this return i was going to get hammered in bitcoin or make a lot of money in bitcoin if it went to a hundred thousand like they were talking about so i was more counting on that than a 50 percent reduction so i did pair back my bitcoin based on my systematic my rules you know and but you still have a small long i still have some longs yeah i have a long you know if you remember i've touted that Tesla trade, where the first yeah. leg up was quite large, you know, nothing like it is now, but it was a nice profit. And, it, and almost 90% of that profit went away. And mm. then only to scream back to new highs. So long-term systems, this is what they do. They give back lots of profit. Oh, wait a second. They stay in trades after you've, you've been devastated and demoralized for giving back all of your open profit only to reemerge, make new highs, and keep going. So I think uh, that current profit is six times in Tesla what it was uh, when I first when it first crashed or for, first made its first leg up. 
anyways, there's pros and cons, and it's good to trade different systems that kind of uh, give you a bit of diversification. Yeah, no, absolutely. And of course, uh, I mean, you mentioned that maybe you stood out last month to the downside, but you've you've been standing out to the upside for many months because of that exact uh, trade. But I think you make a good point, and that is in a situation like this where market really takes off like Bitcoin has done. And because as all our listeners know by now, you don't change your position size even with increased volatility. I think it's a good it's a good learning uh, thing to to realize that one position, even though we are so diversified, can really become dominant to some extent because of the way it's moved. So people shouldn't I mean, they should expect that from time to time. Obviously, it's not that often that we see moves like this. But I guess, you know, Lumpers had a pretty big move as well. Yeah. And the problem with Bitcoin is isolated. It was May. It was just May, the month yeah. of May. I w- would have made less money this year. I would have made less money over the past two years. Bitcoin was wonderful. Everything was great. Oh, you lost money in May. Can you get rid of that loss? No, shut up. I'm not going to get rid of that loss. Net net, it was a great trade. And But you know, we're, we just are so programmed through, from clients. I remember coming out of the turtle program and scratching my head. I was an accountant, so I was doing my own performance tables. And then someone says, oh, they're monthly. I'm like, monthly? Oh, okay. So I'll do monthly performance tables. And then people would actually judge you monthly. I'm like, whoa, wait a second. You're judging me monthly? I had no clue that I would be judged monthly. (laughs) So we get sucked into this by clients and peers. And how did you do? How did you do? I don't know. I don't care. Stop that. Yeah, no, very true. Now, I don't want this to be made into kind of a Bitcoin episode at all. But before we move on, what's been interesting for me to keep sort of notice, at least after that big drop of 50% in Bitcoin, is just how the narrative have changed somewhat. I, 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 I see how I feel that a lot of the Bitcoiners are coming out now feeling a little bit hard done by the narrative that it's not kind of as supportive and critic you know be, things are being more critical against bitcoin and of course a lot of people have lost money in bitcoin because not everybody bought it uh, when it was low a lot of people have bought into the 100,000 dollar potential and or, or 500,000 as Kathy Wood is saying so they've had some severe losses and all of that and of course we can see in our Twitter feed I shared a, a screenshot uh, not too long ago about how certain Bitcoin firms are offering 100 times leverage in Bitcoin which is complete madness and crazy and should be stopped really by the Bitcoin industry before the regulators get involved but anyways it's interesting because I, I, I kind of see that some of, of, of the narrative is, is somewhat unfair, I would say, to, to Bitcoin. But it's kind of, it, it makes me think of how we've been dealing with narrative for decades. And it's, it's rarely positive narrative. Even now, after three solid years of trend following, I don't see that many articles about uh, trend following in, in a positive but anyway, let's get back to the trend-following uh, story, as we normally do. Um, I have a little bit of an update also on our side. It was quite a quiet week uh, for trend followers in general, including things on our side. And the small correction downwards in performance this week really all came from the action we saw yesterday, Friday. And for our trend-following strategy, the corrections really came mostly from the soybean family, including soybeans and the meals and oil. And that was 
you know, if you pair that up with some shorts in European and maybe to lesser extent US fixed income, that's really where most of the losses came from, despite the signs of elevated inflation. Australian fixed income did well for us. However, we and also equities did well. Currencies had small losses, but overall a pretty uneventful week. My own trend barometer finished at 50, which actually indicates a good environment for trend following. And I think we're seeing that overall for the month and for the year so far. In terms of our volatility program, we did see a shift downwards in the VIX uh, term structure this week, almost in parallel. And that kind of fits the muted response to the inflation numbers, at least for the next few months. If you look at the VIX term structure, it hasn't really priced any risk in terms of increased interest rates in the U.S., the VIX and the S&P at the money ratio remains uh, highly elevated and a close look at the S&P option volatility skew shows that both wings, meaning the upside and the downside, continues to be the most expensive or more expensive than usual. Our volatility program was flat for the week. My own trend following model, where I can be a little bit more detailed, it's up 3.77% for the month of uh, June. It's up 17.47% year to date. Performance this month is pretty much equally spread between the three different types of models, although the classical trend models are doing a little bit better. Sectors this month doing well, equities doing the best, followed by energies and bonds. And the worst sectors this month is currencies, followed by base metals and then precious metals. Best markets so far, SMI, DAX and SPY, so all equities. And the bottom three so far this month is the euro, copper and British pounds. And in terms of trading this week, it added a little bit of a long position in NASDAQ. It exited a short German Bund position, and then it went long for one of the models in NatGas. And now comes the scary number that Jerry doesn't like to hear, and that is if everything got stopped out on Monday, the system would lose 17.46%, which is down from 19.14% last week. Overall, only three or four trades for the whole week, so pretty quiet. Yeah, go ahead. Jerry, I was just going to say, I was thinking of a rebuttal to, to that uh, scary number. Maybe to set the proper expectation and so we can all sleep at night. We start quoting not our returns based upon all the open positions, but we just quote the returns based upon where how much money we would be up for the year or the month if we got stopped out. So we never even entertain the idea that we're making all this money and all these open right. trade profits. We just lower the expectation and say, you know, Unless it's a closed out trade or, and then we have to take into consideration the possibility of getting stopped out. So we just report our numbers entirely different. And then all of a sudden we give people this surprising, amazing number of how great we've been doing. I prefer that. Well, that's called reframing as per Eric Crittenden, right? <laughs> that's right. I like that reframing. Yes. A lot of I'm my sure. life needs reframing. <laughs> Very true. We've got quite a lot of questions. Jerry, that we're going to dig into from Omar, Vinicius, Mark, Antonio, and Jacob. And so we're going to do that. And then also you've got some great topics um, that you brought along. So I think this is going to be a fun conversation today. So let me jump straight to the first question. This is from Omar. Now, Omar left a voicemail, but it was pretty long. So I kind of tried to sort of narrow it down a little bit. So I appreciate uh, that, Omar. So let's see. The first question you had was, it really focused on books you can find and read to really explain what trend following is. And I think Omar is looking for kind of a, I call it a manual to specific models and methods. And I will say that there are not a lot of these books out there. I'll be interesting to hear, Jerry, what you think 
but let me just sort of give you my view on that. I think, Omar, the first thing that's really important in terms of literature and getting into trend following is really just find something where you can first and foremost understand the concept of trend following, but also fully internalize what makes this such a, in my view, common sense kind of strategy. But to specifically answer your question about books, I would say from memory, the one book that I find has most concrete examples is really the Andreas Kleno book, Following the Trend. He found a way to replicate the performance of a few managers uh, using classical trend-following models. And I think that gives you a pretty good sort of visual picture of what that may be. Now, you know, these models I wouldn't necessarily just copy and, and trade, but it gives you some insight as to how you can construct a trend-following uh, strategy. So I think that's a good book. I think another book um, where if you really want to dive into trend-following both from a theoretical point of view, but also with some historical perspectives and other things, then of course, Katie Kaminsky, Alex Grayson, and their book, Trend-Following with Managed Futures, that came out a few years ago. I think that's definitely a, a really great one. I would also pluck our own Rob Cowers books. Systematic Trading was the first one he did, and he's done a few more books I think he's always worth listening to. And then, of course, I mean, Michael Covell has written books about trend following. I would, I can't remember, but not all of them are more kind of just storytelling. Some of them are, I think, a little bit more into the, the weeds of trend following. So I think that could be also useful. In terms of books, Jerry, have you come across some other books that you would recommend here? I have. You had a complete answer there. That's a perfect answer. I like uh, Market Wizards. I like the books more so that give me a philosophical basis of what's going on in good traders' minds. And so you mentioned some of those. I love Clanow's books and the other ones you mentioned. They're all great. And I, you can't, uh, there's so much information. It's the opposite of the issue I had when I was 25 years old, where there was very little information. And then very specific information about exactly how to trade and exactly how to do things is right there free on the internet. I get asked questions like this all the time. Hey, teach me how to trade. And I'm like, well, wait a second. There are these books and then there is these resources on the internet. You know, type in trend following rules and then boom. And they're like, oh, okay. And I'm like, if you have questions, then email me. But I'm not going to teach you how to trade. I'm, there's so much out there. Make it your own um, journey and do your own work. So, but I, and I uh, read so much every week about, you know, trend following. It's all pretty much a, repeating the same stuff. It's hard. It's really hard to come up with something new. I did see this new book and I never heard of this guy before. And I saw a video of uh, a podcast with him as well. Lee Freeman Shore, The Art of Execution, How the World's Best Investors Get It Wrong and Still Make Millions. I tweeted about that article or the podcast and some of the quotes from him. And it's uh, really, I never heard of this guy. So I was kind of surprised that there is, well, another person out there who's written books that I've never heard of. And I was picking up some nice quotes from him. Lee Freeman Dash Shore. So I thought he was good. And then, of course, there's our podcast and then the trend following trading club that I host on Clubhouse. So there's so many resources and so many ways that not only reading a book and reading articles and watching podcasts and then getting specific rules and ideas from the internet, but then you can talk to, you can listen to Niels and me and Moritz and Rob 
and Eric and Mark and ask us specific questions. There's just too much. You don't need, you can't hardly walk down the street without getting hit over the head by something about trend following. Absolutely. I left, I left out Twitter. Twitter, of course. And then I would just, on top of that, Omar say that actually on the Top Traders Unplugged website, you can download for free a guide to 200 books within the investment world. And some of them, for sure, there's a section on trend following. So maybe there are some more suggestions you can find in that. The second question that you ha you asked, Omar, was, is it really possible for a private investor to invest just doing trend following? Now, of course, that's a pretty wide question. I think I know what, what you're coming from, and people have heard me say this before. I mean, we, we do this every week in this strong belief that anyone really can, you know, study trend following, learn how to do it, and do it. But I will also say that, you know, it's not necessarily as easy as we maybe, I wouldn't say that we make it sound like, because I think we try to be pretty realistic about it. But I have certainly seen a lot of narrative about, you know, how easy trend following is. And sometimes you even hear it from professionals because they will offer trend following programs for hardly any fee because it's so easy. But I don't think it is that easy. And, you know, the implementation part, although it can be automated, there's a lot of discipline that goes into it. And then as I always come back to, and that's really the diversification Diversifying across markets, maybe diversifying across time frame, maybe even diversifying across different types of trend following strategies. There is so much you really should consider and probably implement to have a good chance of success in trend following. Trading just a couple of equities or a few markets, it really won't give you, in my view, any certainty of success in trend following. So I think that's the biggest challenge. When you ask, can anyone really do it? The answer is yes. But I think there is a but. And I've always said, sometimes it makes more sense to allocate money to a professional trend follower that gives you all of that for a small fee. And then when you're ready, when you've studied, when you have the right size account, then and you still want to do it every single day, then by all means, go ahead. But I think for most people, frankly, they're better off finding a experienced a trend follower with a good reputation. What are your thoughts, Jerry? I couldn't agree more. You're 100% right. I do think it's uh, fun to trade. And I do think that I would, if I wanted to trade and have some fun and teach my children uh, a little bit about managing money, and that, of course, you could uh, invest just doing trend following. I mean, just doing trend following? Of course. Why not? I mean, it's going to, the trend following, regardless of your your size for your account or your assets or whatever, trend following is the best choice. Of course, you can do it just using trend following. I don't really know what maybe the question's getting at, but I would just encourage people uh, to trade some stocks and trade some commodity ETFs and some, uh, you know, some currency ETFs. You can get a little bit of diversification, have fun, use, use some, you know, some medium long-term systems and get in there and don't use leverage and don't go crazy. Don't trade Bitcoin. And just, you know, if you want to do that, that's fine. You know, even if you're a poor golfer, you're going to play golf. No one can play for you. So if you've got it in your blood that you have to trade, you know, trade small, uh, get some diversification. Maybe you don't do shorts to begin with, but just practice and in, just uh, make your mistakes. Uh, you're going to have mistakes. You're going to make do the wrong thing, miss trades, take big losses, and cut profits short. So start with a small account and realize that you're going to pay this tuition like we all have and make that tuition as small as possible. 
Yeah, no, I think that's actually some really important pieces of advice here, Omar. And to everyone, actually, if they're getting into investing, applying the principles of trend following to whatever investment uh, you want to do makes a lot of sense, for sure. You know, just looking at a chart and to see whether the market is going up or down, I mean, that makes a, a, a lot of sense. So, yeah, no, absolutely. Now, Jerry, we got this question last week, and Eric and I talked about it a little bit, but I actually think it's relevant to bring it back up again uh, this week because it was concerning Bitcoin specifically, and there was this discussion on Twitter a little bit. I think Jacob brought it up when Rob had mentioned that he had decided to include Bitcoin in his portfolio, and Jacob brought up a question where he said, I don't understand how anyone can decide to add extremely volatile Bitcoin futures to his or her portfolio, considering there is a 48-hour window where the market is still trading, but the futures contract is not possible to trade. So now we gave, Eric and I gave our question, uh, answer last week, but I, I also wanted to hear your view on that particular issue, which is unique to Bitcoin, meaning that there is this underlying market that is trading and, and can move pretty severely. But if you are sticking to the future side of things for your portfolio, you have to wait until uh, Sunday evening or Monday morning to trade. How do you think about that? Now, that's a good question. And you and Eric did a very good job about sizing the trades based upon the ATR, average true range, the volatility. So we have a small position in Bitcoin and a large position in the euro dollar because and we size them to where their expected volatility is going to be the same each day let's say something like that so we hope you know that's what we're we're attempting to do we don't go crazy with that and, and scale it back and scale it up every day but yeah come on we're going to trade bitcoin really small so it's going to have uh, the same contribution over time on average as all the other markets so that was a the obvious point. So then the point becomes this weekend, the weekend stuff, you know, and Monday. I got to wait till Monday. And Eric, and you brought up some good points that, well, all the markets are like that. Corn is like that. It's closed on Friday afternoon. It opens up on Monday. What happens over the weekend? I'm going to have the slippage. And uh, so it's no different. Okay. So then the difference specifically comes down to, well, wait a second. Corn doesn't trade on Saturday and Sunday like Bitcoin Cash does. Ah, Exactly. So there is this, is this an issue? This is the question. And Eric had this one little comment that I tried to write down when I was listening to the podcast. And he, the way he described it is he, I think I got this right. He says the intrinsic value of Bitcoin, but all markets, well, let's just say, yeah, all the markets that are not trading on Saturday and Sunday, the intrinsic value of corn is trading around on the weekends. That's right. Like it's in people's heads. You know, they're looking at the crops. They're they're living through the weather. They're reading reports or whatever is happening. And corn opens up higher, opens up lower a lot, a little on Monday. And so corn is still trading. It's just not being actual trades are not being done. So I, I it's I used to say it's trading in people's heads. And Eric said the intrinsic value is trading around on the weekends. So I don't think either one of us can really explain it, but I to satisfy everyone, but I sort of think of it that way that it, it's trading in our heads. So when Monday morning rolls around or Sunday night, we have these strong opinions, the market does, and there's going to be a big gap up or big gap down. And so just by the mere fact that we can see Bitcoin trading in the cash market on Saturday and Sunday, I don't think it's much different than corn and soybeans not actually 
having tr- trades transacted on Saturday and Sunday, but it's still kind of synthetically, intrinsically, psychologically being traded because Monday can absolutely be a big gap up or gap down. And we live with that. It's in the data. It's in the back test. And we survive it. What do you think? Yeah, and you can... Yeah, and you can even certainly add to that, you know, I would say a lot of the financial markets, I mean, if there was a, a sudden unknown crisis, whatever that might be over a weekend, or a devaluation or whatever there used to be in the old days, I mean, that's certainly an event risk that that only trading small and being diversified as a good trend follower would be is what keeps you out of trouble. I will ask though one follow-up question, which I'm thinking, I was just thinking of when I heard your answer, which could be another small difference, but I'm not sure whether it is or not. So in most markets, if there are some big moves, certainly in the commodities, you get to a point where it's called limit up or limit down. The price just can't move anymore on that day. In, I think, financial markets, you have the same, of course, but you also have some circuit breakers where the market takes a pause for a few uh, minutes or whatever it is. But in Bitcoin futures, do you know if there are any rules like that? Meaning, could you during the day have a limit up or limit down in the futures price, but actually the underlying, the cash Bitcoin um, trading on Bitcoin exchanges would obviously not adhere to that. Do you know if that's the case? I don't know if that's the case. I haven't seen any evidence of that. I think you could have just stopped when you said, uh, do you know if there's a rule about Bitcoin? I think I would have just said no. You don't even have to complete your sentence. (laughs) There's no rules. Isn't it kind of ironic that this crazy Bitcoin market is giving us what all the market should give us? We should have trading on Saturday and Sunday. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The but no, and the trade. rule, of uh, course. Yeah, no, the rule I meant was only for the futures markets. I know in the wild west of Bitcoin, off exchange, off the future, off the CME, there are no rules, I think, for sure. Yeah. But you know, you bring up a good point, and this was in my notes, and I forgot about it to discuss, to bring up this very point, because um, this is a an issue. These limit up, limit down price movements have been an issue since I've been trading for over 30 years. So are they helpful or are they harmful? And I think it's, I don't really know the answer to that. I don't think we need these circuit breakers and these, although I'm very happy when they do, when they're, when they are implemented and my position is getting torched. But I think in some markets like, well, like the illiquid markets, like I think most of these limit moves have sort of gone away. We don't see them very much anymore, but I'm still in lumber. And lumber, it happens like every day. Limit up or limit down. I think one day last week or the week before, lumber was limit down and finished limit up. And so I don't think that there's not a lot of scientific evidence or that I've seen that that would incorporate some psychological evidence that what is the impact of these limit moves because i think in something like lumber or something that's not very liquid it's panic oh my gosh we're close we're close then sell okay it's a fait accompli it's now it's limited down it forces people to do things they necessarily wouldn't do and it creates more limit ups and limit downs than um it would if the market uh, just um, was allowed to fluctuate so maybe minus 63 in lumber you know they change it's minus 42 and then if it happens two or three days in a row, it goes to 63. And so maybe minus 63, if it was just allowed to fluctuate, it would go down to minus 70 or 80. And then all the weak hands would be out. And then it would rally up to minus 40. And then that's where it would close. Maybe it would something like that would happen. I don't think we really know 
And I just don't think that is, there's no downside. I think there could be a downside of panic, forced panic in people to get something done before it goes limit down, which causes it to go limit down. So, right. yeah, a, a very a point. minor point, but I don't know. Okay, cool. All righty. Let's move on to a question from Mark. Uh, Mark writes, I hope this email finds you well. I was listening to the podcast this week with Eric. I've been thinking about what he mentioned, trend-following hedge funds trading as stock prices. Why are there no ETFs that track trend-following performance? Eric is absolutely right. It would be an incredible value to any long-term investor's portfolio at some to add some percentage of that pie. I've been listening to what you and Eric and so many of your guests have said over the years about the message of trend-following getting to your average Joe out there. There are several hurdles. Essentially, the overwhelming majority of your listeners do not have the amount of money it, it takes to run their own trend-following portfolio. I've been building systems for several years. As, as I've been learning, and there is no doubt it takes mil several millions of dollars to get enough diversification. The other roadblock is the fact that most U.S. investors don't have access to hedge funds to invest in these programs. Someone starting out in life and in their 20s or 30s generally does not have the assets and income to qualify as an accredited investor. It would be incredible, valuable if Chesapeake or Don could trade as an ETF. So, so we need to unpack this a little bit, Jerry, and you probably know more about this than I do, but it's not entirely true to say that there is no ETFs on, on, on trend following. There is a few ETFs, not many, right? Wisdom Tree, I think, is one of them, the one that Meb Faber uses. And there are certainly mutual funds. I mean, you got you have a mutual fund. We have a mutual fund where the minimum is $1,000. So I would say most investors would be able to benefit from that. What I personally see as an issue with this, because I see it the same over here in Europe, and that is that these products, like a mutual fund in the US or a users fund here in Europe, unfortunately is more expensive than what it needs to be just because of the rules and regulations, et cetera, et cetera. So even though nowadays we are kind of moving in the right direction of allowing, I would say, most investors to get some exposure to trend following, we're still not doing it the way I would prefer it to be. And that is, you know, as cheaply as it could be done, if I can put it that way, because offshore funds are generally less expensive than onshore funds. So I think for me, that's, you know, that's an issue. Now, in terms of the ETF, I think this is actually solved with mutual funds, and that is for financial advisors. It's very easy to buy it if it is a mutual fund or an ETF because they can just buy these, put it into their systems, and all the investors would get a small allocation, whatever percentage they, they have decided upon. But if you're talking about, say, an, an offshore fund or an onshore LLC in the U.S., you can't do it like that. You have to kind of go through every single investor needs to fill out subscription documents, et cetera, et cetera, because they have to be accredited investors and so on and so forth. So that does not work for a financial advisor very well, in, is, is my experience. What are your thoughts about Mark's point? Well, like you said, I think there are mutual funds out there. We have one, you have one. There's USITS, which I guess is the European kind of yeah, version equivalent. of mutual funds. So think that they trade pretty pretty similarly to a separately managed account or a private fund. There's probably not a great deal of difference. Not certainly with our mutual fund. It's very similar to our other accounts. 
I think it's probably the biggest issue is just a will for people to be dedicated to that type of investment and not uh, buy it at the highs and get out at the lows. So, But I think it's out there for small investors. Now, I read an article this week where someone, I forgot who it was, I respected, said, you know, these mutual funds, all mutual funds are going away. You know, in 20 years or 10 years, there's going to be nothing but ETFs. So ETFs are a harder game, I think, that's less expenses, lower fees for the managers. JP Morgan had a managed futures ETF that they closed late last year. I just Googled it. It's dated November of last year they closed it. So for some reason, you know, these and the assets have to be high and it's sort of a business deal. I mean, I think there, there's not a huge demand or a will for some firm to step up and say, we're going to make this a 20-year project and we're going to make sure that it succeeds. We're going to lose money until we get enough assets and we're going to, you know, my preference would be a classic trend-following product with Currencies, commodities, stocks and bonds, long and short. And I don't see a, a hurdle for to do that other than just the will as a business to, to get that thing launched and to keep it afloat. But the margins are so tight and small with ETFs. And um, I think that's another thing that holds back people. Why do it if we've got to raise billions of dollars, which could take us years and years, and we're going to earn 50 basis points? I think the mutual funds are 150 basis points, which... You know, some people's eyes, well, that's way too much, 150 basis points. Yeah, no, I think definitely fees is an issue. And I think this notion that if you go move into the ETF space, everything has to be like almost free. I think that's not really a concept that I believe in. I actually think the full fee managers over time perform better than these uh, low cost replicators, so to speak. And the other thing I just want to mention besides the kind of the fee issue is that we also would need, and this is really where the bottleneck is, if you look at it from the inside, th that whole market is, is controlled by the four or five big wirehouses or what used to be the wirehouse. I mean, it's the big Wall Street firms that really controls that market. Because if you're not on one of their platforms, the financial advisors can't allocate to it anyways. And so you kind of, you know, it's a non-starter really. So the pressure should really be on those houses to say, yeah, we're going to create a platform where you have some choice, where you can select between the top 10 or top 20 different managers, et cetera, et cetera, instead of just having like one manager or two managers where there's really not a lot of choice and so on and so forth. But as I said, I mean, certainly, I, and also I think the other thing that might be a problem with some of these uh, structures is um, performance fee, actually. I think a lot of these structures is more difficult to do if you want to charge a performance fee like we do on our side, where we don't charge a management fee, but where everybody wants you to just do a management fee only, which I think you do, Jerry. But I think if you have different views on these things, it's difficult to enter that market. But the more people who talk about it, of course, and put pressure on the firms, so hopefully we can have more choice for investors to do that. You know, Eric um, brought up this idea. Maybe just maybe just mentioned it about it. what if CTAs were a stock? Yes. Okay. So I wonder. I would have to get him back and ask him this. Then, if there was a CTA uh, and how mandatory. And then his first point, of course, was how mandatory it is. I'm, I'm kind of being sarcastic here because I don't agree with him totally on this. But how obvious and mandatory it is to pair. A managed futures program with a long stock index like he has done at standpoint mm -hmm. in his mutual fund okay so what if we combine those two ideas and we say well you know uh, here's a great etf that's managed futures 
a great performance. There's no issue as liquidity. There's no issue with fees. Everyone loves it. And uh, you know, an ETF is like a stock. It trades. You just buy it, put it into your portfolio. Would I wonder if Eric would say, well, that will work then. My, then you, or no, the ETF itself, yes, it must also be paired with some of its assets, material amount of its assets being along the S&P as well. Or would he say, oh no, if someone comes up with this ETF, then they can just move, then it will be like a stock that people can purchase, Dunn stock, Chesapeake stock, move it into the portfolio. Yeah, interesting question. Yeah, and also I wasn't quite sure. I I, I did uh, notice when he said that, and, and maybe, of course, it might be easier if it's called or th- thought about as a stock. But actually, I mean, a mutual fund is kind of the same thing. I mean, it can be bought as, as probably as easily as it more or less as a stock but anyways we'll leave that for next time Eric is back question from Vinicius he writes I would be very curious to know your thoughts on the application of trend following systematic strategies in single stocks considering the boom on retail trading mostly focus on individual stocks driven by momentum slash behavioral factors, wouldn't a trend-following system benefit from this market condition? Perhaps a portfolio of stocks, long or short, using a trend-following systematic approach could yield some interesting returns using diversification to reduce the idiosyncratic risk of single stocks. Well, Jerry, you have the experience in this field. Do you I guess the question is, the real question is, because you already do it, which Vinicius may not be aware of, maybe then the question is, why aren't more people doing it? Yeah, I'm going to be accused of um, planting this question through some pretend <laughs> email address. No, it wasn't me who sent this question in. Of course, it's a great idea. I could go on, it's a million reasons not to trade indexes, and but trade, replace your index exposure with the components that make up the index. Uh, for all, good, there's lots of good trend-following reasons outlier trades, diversification. I think it's not 100% legitimate to apply a trend-following system on a basket. Within that basket, you know, if you broke it apart, you would be long some of those stocks, short some of those stocks, and flat some of those stocks. Putting them all together and trading that, it's kind of like trading our NAV, you know, or trading all the markets long only with some sort of crazy weighting scheme. It doesn't make any sense to me. Long only, uh, stock only, I've tried it, I've done it. It's very volatile. Well, yeah, stocks are very volatile. It's the old 8% return on average with the max drawdown being at least 50, sometimes 90. So who wants that? Well, the vast majority of the world think that's okay. And we can offer something much, much better. There's no way in hell a CTA with with a diversified portfolio could be as bad as an 8% return and a greater than 50% drawdown. It's just not possible. We have too much diversification. So I think uh, this leads into my other point that I'll make about the podcast with Eric, which I thoroughly enjoyed. And I would like listen to the podcast and then I would say, oh, I'm writing notes. Like I'm going to disagree with this when I'm on the podcast. But then by the time he was finished, I was like, oh yeah, okay, okay. I see what he's saying. Yeah, I can't really get too uptight about it. But I would just say that for CTAs in the industry in general, it's been a huge mistake from a performance point of view and from appearance point of view to not trade single stocks. I think it's a huge uh, problem that we're really not always categorized, thought of as a part of the, the hedge fund 
industry. We're not a category. We're not, it's not long, short, and uh, macro, and arbitrage, and CTAs. It's, sometimes it's we're separate, and I think that's a mistake. And for us, from a, a PR point of view, from a legitimacy point of view, we're not located in New York. We're not giving off the signs that, hey, you know, these guys trade stocks and a few currencies and commodities too. And so I think I would like to hold out a little bit longer before I give in to what Eric was suggesting with this permanent long S&P position that is not fooling anyone and everyone can see it. I'm not really sure how successful it's going to be. And, and he even said, let's see how successful it'll be. Maybe he's right, maybe he's wrong. But I would like to see the CTAs do an about face and embrace single stocks, maybe trade a few more single stocks than is optimal from the back test, but be known as, hey, we trade some single stocks and you're getting some good stock exposure. We're not going to give in on the trend following piece. No, you need the trend following. You need the risk control, the small losses, letting the profits run, sizing based on ATR. We'll give you some stock exposure. We won't strike out when stocks have a huge run up. We're going to make some money and it's going to be maybe not as much, all the time, but I think we need a reset and embracing the stock market and single stocks like the rest of the world and not just be known as these goofballs. We already are so goofy with our trend following, but we only trade indexes? Come on, got to stop that and uh, pretend that we're part of this normal and legitimate hedge fund industry that doesn't seem to ever be compelled to say, can you imagine any of these hedge funds with less performance, less diversification, less risk control than the CTAs coming up with this idea that, well, in order for us to sell ourselves, we should put a material amount of our assets in long S&P all the time. No, of course not. So I think I like that idea just as much as I like Eric's idea. I'm going to date myself a little bit here, Jerry, but I'm going to obviously date you as well, because I think both of us remember that actually there was a time in the 90s where the CTAs started to reclassify themselves as hedge funds because CTAs were doing horrible. I think 1994 and thereabouts, it was, you know, really lackluster environment for us. And so people started talking about like we were hedge funds and then hedge funds started to get a bad reputation and then people moved back to the CTA brand. So... We'll see. I don't disagree necessarily with some of the points. We are looked upon as kind of the outsiders, and that certainly doesn't help if you want the support of the big Wall Street firms. The other fact is that we don't trade that very much, really, especially the longer-term guys. So we're not very interesting as a client for many of these firms, so we don't get much love from them, and that's another issue. But anyways, the next question I know we've been looking forward to, it's from Antonio I'm going to read it and then I'm going to have to just explain it a little bit more. Antonio writes, if we study the small sample of winners that paid for the Linchi, we will find that correlations rose to one across most all asset classes, as well as direction, long versus short, essentially weren't the bulk of trend following winners concentrated bets. So first of all, I didn't even know what Linchi meant when I read the question. So I had to go back and, and ask you, do you know what Antonio is on about here? And then you translated it for me saying, and I guess maybe Googled it, Lynchy translated various as the slow process of lingering death or slow slicing, and also known as death by a thousand cuts, was a form of torture and execution used in China from roughly 900 until it was banned in 1905. So we're talking about 
small losses. So if we started this, the small sample of winners that pay for all the small losses, I think that's where we are coming from in Antonio's questions. And even with that explanation, it's still a difficult question to fully understand, for me at least. So I'm going to let you speak to this one, Jerry. I love the question. I love Antonio. He asks great questions. And I think he's a fan of trend following, but he is a good conscience of, of trend following. And he, he likes to send you and me uh, difficult questions to understand primarily. But I think this he, he came up with this question after I tweeted on, about a set of articles or podcasts with Druckenmiller. And Druckenmiller was saying, don't diversify. And it's the same old thing. Like CTAs think diversification is great. And everyone else, the fundamental people, we think all of our trades have the same expectation as a systematic trader. So obviously you trade everything the same size, massive diversification. There's no downside. It's you're making a lot of bets at the, you're at a thousand different or hundred different blackjack tables using the same system with the same edge. So you're just spreading out versus being at one blackjack table with one person, let's say. And the fundamental guys, they rank their ideas from one to 10. And they say, why would I put a lot of money in eight, nine, and 10? You know, my top three or four ideas. So I want to be concentrated. This is uh, Soros or Buck Druckenmiller and definitely uh, someone like um, Buffett. And so he goes on to say, I don't use stop losses. That's the dumbest idea ever. And then he tells a story about being really bearish on the British pound and that famous trade. He goes into Soros and he says, I'm going to take 100% of my money and go short the pound. And Soros says, well, that's dumb. Do 200%. So, so, but then Druckenmiller is all, he, then I think he does later say, well, he gets out of his stocks with a 15% loss, but then he talks bad about stop losses, the dumbest idea ever. And recently he has talked about his positions. And he was saying, I'm long the grains, I'm long the currencies, I'm long the metals, any commodity that moves, I'm long. And I'm like, okay, so am I. Now you sound like a CTA. So that's maybe a separate subject to how confusing he, he gets me. But then I was like making this point that no, thank you. I've got my risk control, my stop loss. I'm not going to take concentrated positions. Every manager, any trader that Druckenmiller has ever met takes concentrated positions. This is the one characteristic of all great traders. And I'm like, well, no, thank you. I'm not going to do that. So then Antonio says, well, wait a second, you, know, you guys, you want to talk about all these positions, 100 positions, but you may have 100 positions, but so often, or, or maybe most of the time, or almost all the time, when you really make your money, these very diversified positions, they become very correlated. And essentially, Aren't they just sort of concentrated bets that you've just tried to spread out amongst many different markets, but you're not getting much diversification? And I think that he has a reasonable point. That's probably true. That it probably has happened sometimes, especially when the stock market over the past 10 years has gotten cr crushed. Our diversification didn't always help us. And all the stocks went to one, but then we started losing money in a lot of the other markets as well. But then, and I can't give an exhaustive answer in, in defense of all of this. It was just morally anecdotal. I could remember many years, though, where Dunn and Chesapeake made a ton of money in natural gas. Or 2014, we, were, we made a ton of money just being short, crude, heating oil, unleaded. Three out of 100 markets for me. So, and then there's 2006, where the LME went up. And then there's been periods where gold went up. And 
1987, silver doubled, gold did not. And there's been three or four times where heating oil doubled or tripled and crude did not. So it can happen in many different ways. It's certainly going to work out in our favor sometimes for being diversified. And then sometimes it won't work out, but it won't be worse than getting crushed by being concentrated. And I think that I sort of tried to make this point too, that I'll bet you that most of the people who have never survived many years trading, it's been a combination of trading too large and being too concentrated, more than likely. We see that all the time. Too much of a position in AMC or GameStop or something. So I don't know. It's really just a situation where you need to protect yourself as much as possible, being diversified, trading small, being small in a lot of different markets, using rules, stop losses, and then maybe you'll survive. But there's never a guarantee. No, I mean, great points. And now that I know uh, what the story is and the question from Antonio really is all about, let me just say the following. I think you probably will remember, certainly in the earlier conversations we had when we started this series, that I always talked about that we also have to be... So when we talk about diversification, we actually also have to be willing to be to have conviction. And conviction for me always stood out as when the position started to be correlated and or the, maybe they were narrow, the portfolio became narrow. That's actually, as you rightly say, that is typically where we make our big run-ups in performance. That's just what happens. On top of that, I would say that you can almost narrow it down when things go wrong for investors in general. It comes down to kind of what you can shorten as LLC, leverage, liquidity, and concentration, right? So those are the things that we try to manage really well through rules. But I think the danger... I mean, I have a lot of respect for Druckenmiller. I think he makes uh, actually a lot of sense when he talks, unlike so many other people. But but here's the danger is that people who, who who go and watch him talk on Bloomberg and they say and he says things like, yeah, you know, I, I put all my eggs in one basket and I watch the basket really closely. And they will say, oh, yeah, that makes sense. I can do that, too. And this is where it goes wrong, because it's there are probably very few managers that without hard and fast rules, and I don't know, I mean, I sometimes get the impression like some of these people are secretly trend followers as well, but they may not program it like we do, but, you know, innately in themselves, they have these rules and they have the discipline to actually more or less, you know, trade as a trend follower, which is very rare, frankly. And so I think the danger is that people see this and think, yes, I can do that too, and, and then they get into trouble. So th that's just how I would view that. I think, yeah, you know, he, listen to what Drakenmiller has to say, but don't think you can just go and do it. I think this is where we probably, we may not be as smart as Drakenmiller, but at least we're smart enough to know that following rules is a great idea in the long run. So that's kind of how I, I think about it. But Antonio is absolutely right. Uh, and so, by the way, you made one comment that I wanted just to go back to. You said, yeah, that last year and, and, and maybe in previous periods, you know, we could kind of get hurt from the diversification didn't help. But actually, I've gone back and looked at, and I know other people have as well, where, you know, which part of our portfolios tend to do well when there is a crisis coming. And actually, it is it is things like commodities. So in that sense, you could say that diversification actually really helps. What the problem usually is when we get some of these initial sell-offs and crises where we 
as trend followers can lose uh, a lot of money. We don't have to, but we can. It's really from the fact that often they come when equities have gone for a while to the upside, maybe even, and, and especially if they're selling off sharply from an all-time high where you know you're going to be fully loaded equities and you probably might also have you know correlated position in bonds at the same time and so on and so forth. But actually, the diversification is often what what helps us, you know, at the end of the day, but not necessarily the first week or two. Uh, That's so. right. It's a tough question. I mean, it's hard to address every possibility. It's just that you can't foresee the future and you don't want to pay attention to what's happened in the recent past or the past at all. Just defend yourself with the way we do, with longs and shorts, lots of markets. You know, one thing that I don't enjoy is... Uh, subjectivity you know i like trend following i like rules based because it's objective and it forces me to be objective and if someone was to ask me a question which they do all the time even on the podcast like well when do you get out well i have a you know four or five atr stop or i get out at the 100 day low and i get in at the 100 day high and then i have a system that does the 125 day low you know blah, whatever right or this particular moving average 50 by 200 moving average the golden cross that's fine as well or put all your eggs in one basket and watch the basket carefully. What are you talking about? What does that even mean? So no one has put all their eggs in one basket and woken up one day, lost a ton of money, and somebody says, were you watching it? And they were like, yeah, I was watching it. There's nothing I could do. I had all my eggs in one basket. You can watch it all you want to. But what does that even mean? If, it, if you're surviving Wall Street, if you're surviving these markets, you know what it means? I got the hell out. I took a small loss. I reversed my position based upon the trend. Oh, so you're pretty much doing exactly what we would do. But the way you want to describe it is put all your eggs in one basket and watch the basket carefully. I mean, that's just silly. It's sophomoric. It's not serious. It doesn't mean anything. Now, my other favorite is, and this is probably in those articles as well, get out when the reason that you bought has changed. Oh my gosh, is that the silliest thing you've ever heard? Well, number one is, I don't know if it's really changed or not. I know I'm getting my ass kicked. And I, if I was a CTA, I'd be getting out and reversing based upon my, my breakout system or my stop loss. But I don't know if my initial reason for getting in was even correct. What if it was wrong? So it's these kind of uh, subjective and platitudes and the lack of, no, dude, give me a number. I want a number right now. Which breakout, which moving average, which ATR, what's my unit size, how many units do I have on, what's my, yeah, no, stop with all this uh, half-ass trend following, non-systematic approach, and we'll just make it up by trading larger. Good luck. You know, they had a lot of success, but I don't know if they're still doing that. I think there's a lot of evidence. I'm long the currencies, the commodities, any commodity that moves, I'm long. Yeah, that's exactly my quote. When I quoted that in the Twitter, my, I did hashtag CTA. Yeah, just a CTA, which is great. Fantastic. Yeah, and in a sense, what you're highlighting here, I think, is, is part of what we kind of started out with and also what I discussed with Eric last week, and, and that's the challenge we have because we don't have a great story. I mean, these guys have great stories, or we broke the Bank of England. I mean, CTAs were also short the pounds on that day, but nobody talks about that, right? But we Because we didn't talk about we broke the Bank of England or when people, you know, apparently think that John Henry was the other side of, of Nick Leeson when he brought down Barings Bank. I can assure you, John Henry, if he was on that side of the trade, he had a lot of CTAs alongside him, you know. So 
you know, it's silly, but narrative, on you know, unfortunately, it it really does matter. And but there we are. What can we do? We continue to follow our rules and and not make too much of a fuss, I guess. Now you brought a couple of topics to my attention before we started recording, but I think some of them we've actually talked about. So let me just ask you whether you want to go back to them or whether you feel we've done enough on that. So you said you definitely want to talk about Eric's solution for CTAs using stock indices for a permanent stock exposure. You feel we've done that already earlier today? I think so. I think we've done that, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, okay. And then, of course, you said there's the Bitcoin crash versus uh, market versus future. I think we've already talked about that as well. And then you said, I want to mention that for CTAs, following the rules is not enough. The rules must be good rules. Talk to me a little bit about that. Okay, well, I've said this on the podcast many times, you know, and I think that we go too far with the rules. CTAs, if it's a rule, then we can move on. Okay, well, if you told me it was a rule, then I'm above reproach. You can't, it's a superpower. I've cloaked myself in in this jacket that no one can criticize me as long as I've said, hey, it's a rule and I'm following it. And I think that's silly. I don't think that's true. These rules have to be good rules. They have to be, you know, the whole, I was just thinking that, oh, Neanderthal, you know, I need to get back on with Rob and talk about this Neanderthal. And I need to talk and we need to do a face-off between him doing my accent and me doing his accent. And then we got, but I got to thinking, you know, that Moritz and I, I don't know if we've made a big deal about this, about how to define classic trend following. What is it about classic trend following that we... You know, we throw these words around, but I think the actual meaning that Moritz and I think that they we're trying to get across, I don't know that we've been articulate or we've maybe people have forgotten what we mean by it, but it's strictly that we mean robustness and sample size. And so one entry rule, one exit rule, and a stop loss, and it's not going to get better than that, you know. I know Rob was mentioning things in his podcast about doing something and then that made it robust and i was like ah, i don't know about that i don't know what he means by that so it would, that's another really good discussion we could have with him but yeah i think it's you've got to you can have these rules but if the sample size is five and uh, having a rule like for instance like uh, well if i have a big profit in a trade like bitcoin and uh, then i'm going to tighten up my stop no that's a bad rule I don't care if it is a rule. It's not a good rule. It has no sample size. And that's the problem with non-classic Neanderthal trading is that you can have a rule. It's just not based in math. And it's no better than discretion. I suppose it's just discretion you're going to utilize with a rule is probably better than just random discretion. But there needs to be more emphasis on these rules and not on the back test. Well, I have this rule. And when I implemented it, it made my sharp ratio higher. Well, sure, sure. I mean, the computer is an expert at these little tiny rules that have that can be applied to five trades or 50 trades. The whole point about the breakout systems or the moving average systems is you're having 5,000 trades and in your, this not a basket, but a net, the net that you catch these trades in, like fish, you've caught also these outliers. And so you can include the outliers because they're part, they're, they're 100 trade out of 5,000. And you can say my sample size is 5,000, not 100. And that is the problem with having systems that do more things than one entry rule, one exit rule, and one stop loss. 
Yeah, no, I think that is a great point to make because I think a lot of people would be generally quite uncertain about what one, what does, you know, what is a good rule versus a bad rule. I mean, that's one thing. But the other thing that we throw around from time to time, which is a very hard concept to to grab, I think, is, is the word robustness, right? I mean, and I think it's fair to say, and correct me if I'm wrong, if I understand you correct, Jerry, that when you look at this, when you look at good rules and when you look at things that you consider robust, these are rules or these are th things that have occurred so many times that you've got a massive sample size compared with rules that, to make it simple, filters away a lot of the trades and you end up with just, quote-unquote, something that looks good, but you just haven't seen it that many times. And I imagine that you feel that's a bad thing to do, but secondly, it's not a robust thing to do. That's right, and it gets back into the other topic that you and Rob talked about, and that is optimizing the parameters per market, per right. sector, or using all of the markets and then there's only one reason that you must use all the markets and that's sample size you're just convincing yourself that hey as rich would say i can cover up the name of the market on the chart and i know what to do well we're covering up the name of the markets when we do this back test because one of the objections that people could have is look in order to get this sample size that you want you're treating all the markets the same you're treating the longs and shorts the same. I can see tremendous difference between the longs and shorts. I can see mm -hmm. tremendous pattern differences between the Swiss franc and corn, performance differences as well. But you're covering up all of that and trying to convince me that all of these markets should be treated the same. They are the same. And you must ignore the differences between the commodities, currencies, and interest rates in stocks and the longs and the shorts. And we're saying, yes, please play along. This is the only way we can get the requisite sample size. Aha, I see what you're going. I have so many complaints about this. I'm never going to trend follow like, like you're explaining it to me. And I'm like, yeah, I get it. But this is just the best we can do. But then inside the CTA community, there's this total lack of recognition that this is an issue. And let's play around with optimizing I think you said that's what AHL did. They optimized per sector. Okay. You, see, you know what? It's interesting. So obviously I'm kind of leaning in both camps, right? And I think I had, I can't remember it was on air or, or after the conversation I had with uh, uh, Rob, but but also with Eric last week. Certainly it was, I think, an off air. Because on one hand, I completely agree with what you said. Absolutely. On the other hand, I will say, that if you take part of your risk budget and say, I'm going to apply this to using the same parameters on all markets, but I'm also going to take part of my risk budget and going to do that to, say, parameters based on sectors and parameters based on individual markets. In my own mind, I'm thinking I'm actually going to get even more diversification. And so on one hand, I'm being pulled in towards this because I like diversification. The more diversification I can get, and why wouldn't I want more diversification on parameter selection? I actually, I should want that. But on the other hand, I agree with you as well that to keep it even more simple, just trade everything the same. So I'm sort of, I'm torn a little bit between 
both, frankly. I, I will say in my trend-following model, I do what you do. I mean, trade all the same. But on the model I was describing, which is kind of a short-term model that, that I've been working on as a separate project, we have played around with the other way of doing it. And I have to say, it, it looks very interesting. And it looks very robust, actually. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the simple idea, if it's... it's I'm calling something simple. It has to sort of lead to a purpose, you know. It just we don't trade simple just because we want to trade simple. Or you could describe this one entry rule, one exit rule, one stop loss rule as simple. But it, it basically is just totally dependent upon capturing as many trades as we think is necessary. And we need more trades than you would you would think, according to people much smarter than me, because of the non-normal distribution. So this this ups out of the requirement for sample size. <clears throat> so another thing too is, oh yeah, but you don't want to add in diversification when this type of diversification that you're adding in is not reliable. And But of course, we all trade. And so all of my four systems that I trade, they're highly correlated and they're all breakout and they're just different links, look back links. And then over the test period, the 30 year test period, they all make about the same amount of money overall. And, but they can have much different, like I'm gonna make much different on these big, huge trends. My short term system may make the most if the mark, if soybeans crash or it may make the least because if it goes down and gets ex exited in my shortest term system, soybeans may go up and go another $5. And so the P&L of the trade could would be much different on these big, huge trends. So it is worth trading different parameters, but that have gone through that same process of I used all of the data to come up with all four systems and I didn't. And then, of course, you can prove to some degree. I'm, I'm out on a limb here because Rob's going to come on and say, "Hey, I did exactly what Jerry said, and I proved that uh, he's wrong." So, okay, I'm putting it out there. This is the way that I would attempt to gain some extra knowledge. I'm not sure if you could prove it, but you would certainly expect that uh, if this has any validity, then your corn system you could do it sort of an in sample out of sample so for the first 15 or 20 years of your data you could optimize the corn with their parameters and then see if going forward over the next 15 or 20 years if that maintains that those parameters are in fact they do maintain their supremacy and so i've had that explained to me as well and i'm like well there that answers it of course, you just do this sort of in the 90s, optimized corn for the 90s. Well, was that the best thing for the 2000s? My guess is no, it's not going to be the best thing. So the issue is over. It's settled. And I think that's pretty much can prove the point that less data is not going to make it better. Yeah, no, I mean, there's definitely a, a few different ways of, of skinning a cat, and and it is uh, it is an interesting discussion. I think definitely all of us are all true to to the core of, of trend following, even though we might think about it a little bit differently. Funny enough, just a completely uh, off track on that, but the, you know, my own trend following model that I talk about every week, which consists of three different types of trend following models. So not just where the parameters are different, but actually it's three different types of trend following. So it's still trend following. The funny thing is, I think last time I looked, it could have been at the end of last year, but over kind of since 1990 up until the end of 2020, so over a 30 year period, as far as I remember, all three different model groups, so there are three of them, pretty much had 
the same total return over that 30-year period. So interestingly enough, and so in one way you could say, yeah, I mean, that obviously adds some diversification and there's no real kind of wrong or right in whether you use breakout or moving averages, like like you said. But, but I think you have to th- certainly think carefully about how those components play together. That's for sure. Anyways, we can continue on this for a long time and I'm sure we need to get Rob back with you actually on a joint conversation soon. And Mark and Eric. Yeah. We'll bring the whole band. Yeah, we should, we should do a whole band. A webinar. Let's do a webinar. Let's do a yeah. video. Yeah. yeah. Now, the last thought that you had, or topic you had written down, so I'm interested where you want to go with this. You say, maybe we can talk about your thoughts on measuring skew and volatility using daily, monthly, annual returns versus trade PNL. Tell me what you had in mind there. Well, I, yeah, kind of, I don't think I'm prepared to get into that, but okay. I would just say that just a, a teaser on that is, I'm unsure if I got this correct, but I think I do. And that is, I feel like I'm at odds with other CTAs on this issue as it relates to measuring performance or the skew and some of these numbers. And I look at the trade, how did each trade perform? Mm. And I think that's the way that I was taught to do it. So, oh, there was some information recently I was reading about how long-term trading, you lose the positive skew, which I don't think is correct. If you look at the trades themselves, and this was coming from a person who's obsessed with crisis alpha and making money when the stocks lose money. So who knows, it could have been something intertwined into all of that. But I think the majority of people look at the daily returns or the returns on the month or the day and I think that's, I got to do some more research on this topic, but I'm pretty sure it's better to look at the, the distribution of the actual trade P&L, which will show uh, a lot of skew and a lot of uh, outliers versus getting muddied in with the daily returns of a whole portfolio. And I think that's probably where I don't think that's possible. Probably. Yeah, no, I think I know where you're getting. And also I will say it's true that skew is something that has come up in the trend-following conversation the last couple of years. Some firms focus more on it than others. So it's just one of those narratives, I think, that we've just seen come on stream. And obviously, usually when things come on stream, it's because it fits the person or the, the firm that that starts talking about it, you know, like we see with so many things. And that's fair enough, Frank. We all do that. Bring up points that makes us look good, right? But it is interesting because it it goes back to this thing about, you know, do you just select managers that has the best shop and then you think you get the best portfolio? Likewise, do you just, you know, pick strategies that over some random period has the most, you know, positive skew towards equities? I mean, I don't know. But I am interested in this concept of building a portfolio to deal with different regimes. I think that part of the discussion, I think, is quite interesting because I think that makes a lot of common sense. The problem is that we've only really seen one kind of regime in the last 20 plus years. And so most portfolios will get the same result in terms of what they should be including, such as private equity and stuff like that, which is for sure, in my opinion, not a diversifier if something goes wrong in the markets, right? But then the diversifiers may not look as as great when you just look back the last 20 years. Who knows? I think we'll come back to that in the future. Before I bring everyone up to date on the performance, I just want to say that we could do with a few more rating and reviews, if you like what we do on these uh, 
podcast, we would love for you to take five minutes of your time and just go to iTunes and leave a, a rating and review. If you don't know how to do it, you can always go to toptradersunplugged.com forward slash review and there's a guide to how to do it. But they really help a lot more than you can ever imagine. So I would, and I know everyone on the podcast would appreciate if you would just go and do that right after listening to this episode. Performance still strong for the industry. Beta 50 index up 71 basis points as of Thursday, up more than 8% for the year. Sockgen CTA index up almost a percent for the month of June, up 8.654% for the year. Sockgen trend index up 0.86% for the month, up 10.75% for the year. And the Sockgen short-term traders index, it is down... 21 basis points in June, up 1.3% year-to-date. Trend barometer, as mentioned earlier, its uh, reading right now is 50, so it's a good environment for trend following. And the uh, equities are also still doing well. MSCI up one and a quarter for the month, up 12% for the year. World government bond index, as we've talked about, reacted generally positive to a surprisingly high inflation number, so it is up 0.13% month-to-date. Jerry, anything else you want to bring up before we close out for this this week? No, I think we covered a lot of ground. I think we did as well. So thank you so much for taking your time out and tuning into our conversation today. Next week, I'm joined by Mark. So make sure you have your questions coming in. As usual, info toptradersonplug.com is where you can send them and we will do our best to answer them. It makes our conversations much more fun, not just for the other listeners, but for us as well to hear what are the topics, what are the issues that you are focusing on. So uh, really do continue to send them in. From Jerry and me, thanks so much for listening. And until next time, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.